More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to episode 40 of Survivor Sanctuary. I can hardly believe I'm at episode 40 already. It feels like just yesterday I switched on the mic and recorded the first episode of Survivor Sanctuary, but here we are. Episode 40 is kicking off right now. So if you couldn't tell by the title of today's podcast, I want to talk about enablers of abuse and how enablers are more dangerous than abusers themselves. So we're gonna unpack that on this episode of Survivor Sanctuary, but one of the reasons it's really been swirling around in my mind this week is because, well, caveat here, I could literally use like five different stories in abuse news right now to to use as an introduction to this podcast because it's literally everywhere. We have some uh, universities in trouble for not properly handling abuse and we have pastors who have hired ministers who have not properly handled abuse or who have covered up abuse or lied about abuse. But just for this episode, because it's something that I just watched over this past weekend, I'm going to talk about Athlete A. It is the documentary on Netflix that is all about USA Gymnastics and bringing down Dr. Larry Nasser. Now, I'm not going to get into detail about the documentary. I will say, though, that you should definitely watch this documentary if you get a chance to do that. Um, Netflix offers a free trial. I know probably most people have Netflix, but if you don't, they offer a one-week free trial. Even if you've had an account in the past, I've probably had like three free trials in the past of Netflix. But if you want to get your one-week free trial and you can watch Athlete A, and uh, then you could cancel or keep it. I don't want to upset the folks at Netflix. We want to be honest and above board, of course. But you know what? You get that free trial. And then if at the end of the week you want to cancel, go right ahead and do it. It was a great documentary. Um, I hesitate to say great documentary because really I wish that the documentary did not ever need to be made. And knowing that Larry Nasser abused hundreds and hundreds of girls is the opposite of great. The great part, of course, of the documentary is that they detail how Larry Nasser was finally brought to justice and he is now serving a life sentence in prison um, for his crimes. And that part, of course, is awesome. The part that was so not awesome to me is this realization that so many of these girls that Larry Nasser abused would never have been abused by him had people done the right thing, had people not enabled Dr. Larry Nasser, had the system not been set up to protect an abuser, but had been set up to protect little children from abusers. That was the part that I think got me the most because I've heard so many things about his story before. Um, Larry Nasser and many of his victims, I've read a lot of articles, I've watched some news stories, and I've read Rachel Den Hollander's book, What is a Little Girl Worth? But I was still like mind blown 
by the end of this documentary when up pops on the screen that at least 500 women have come forward to say that they've been abused by Dr. Larry Nasser. And in watching this documentary, seeing how many times USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University and so many people had the opportunity to stop Dr. Larry Nasser, and instead of stopping him, they basically enabled him to continue abusing. And that's the part that just makes my stomach turn. The part in the documentary where John Manley, who was an attorney representing one of Larry Nasser's victims, he says something to the effect of, the majority of these people should never have even met Larry Nasser. Like they should never have even met this man. And they ended up being abused by him. And they ended up having their innocence taken away. And honestly, that's the part that makes me the sickest. And maybe, I don't want to say I'm wrong for that, um, but maybe it sounds a little weird. Like my fury and my anger in watching that documentary was so not directed at the perpetrator. And I don't mean that to say, like, hear me when I say, yes, I'm angry with that man. He disgusts me. And I I just, he's stomach turning. But the fury that I felt in watching this story unfold in front of me was not directed at him. I found that it was directed at the people who continually covered up for him enabled him and refused to listen to the people who were telling them over and over in some cases that this guy was a danger to children. So that's why I wanted to have the conversation about enablers. And I wanted to have the conversation about why I feel like enablers are actually more dangerous than abusers in a lot of cases. But what I want to do first here is just give you a little asterisk right now. I am not at all in this episode of Survivor Sanctuary, excusing abusers. I'm not at all letting them off the hook or saying, oh, abusers just can't help themselves. And, you know, it's sickness that they can't, you know, it's just what happens and they really are powerless. I'm not saying any of that at all. I'm saying we all know 100% that abusers suck because they're abusers, they're predators, that they're doing what they do, which is to abuse and to prey on people. I mean, that's pretty much what you expect them to do, right? A wolf is a wolf, a, a lion is a lion, a predator is a predator. They're they're doing what they do. You don't expect anything more from an abusive person. You don't expect anything more from a predator except what they do. So I'm not here to excuse them. I'm not here to say that they can't help it. I'm not here to take any responsibility away from abusers because the person who decides to abuse a child is the person who is responsible for abusing that child. And I don't think that any excuse is valid enough. Like people, oh, I had a bad childhood. Oh, I didn't have a dad. Oh, I grew up this way or women didn't like me or this or that. I was lonely. Like whatever the excuses are, I don't think any of them are valid Abusing people is abhorrent and despicable and abusers suck. So now that we have that out of the way, I want to talk about why I feel like enablers are even more dangerous than abusers themselves. And I also want to talk about what makes a person an enabler, just in case you were kind of curious about that part as well. So why don't we actually start with what an enabler is? 
And I really think that a great place to find an awesome definition of an enabler is to look at any addiction recovery manual because they talk a lot about enablers when it comes to addiction recovery. And again, I hesitate to make the comparison between a sexual abuser of children and a person who is addicted to a substance because I understand that those are two very different things. I don't believe that child predators just have an addiction that they can't control. It is not the same as using a substance that is available and legal in many cases every which way that you look. It is not the same thing to plan and to perpetrate crimes against little children, especially not sexual crimes. So understand when I say that I'm not comparing the vice of a child sexual abuser and the vice of an alcoholic. I'm not comparing those things, but I do think that the way that in addiction recovery that enablers are defined really fits when it comes to people who enable sexual abuse. So enabling refers to a pattern of behavior, usually by the loved ones of a person who's struggling with an addiction. And those behaviors or that pattern of behavior makes it easier for the addicted person to continue substance abuse. This typically involves ignoring, denying, excusing, or justifying the addiction. And honestly, when I think of enablers, especially within the church enablers, I mean, in the Larry Nasser documentary, obviously we were not talking about the church, but watching that documentary, it was as though I was watching a story about the church because literally the same MO the entire time. It was this institutional self-protection. Everything and everyone is important except the victims of the abuser. But for purposes of this podcast, we are obviously talking about sexual abuse and the church. So I will be referring to the church when I talk about people who enable abusers, because that is where we see it over and over and over again. It's not the only place we see it, as so many news stories will tell you, but it is there. It is a huge problem. And it's a big reason I have this podcast is to talk about sexual abuse within the church. So that's where this topic is going to veer off a little bit from the uh, documentary. I began by talking about Athlete A, but I mean, my goodness, story still applies. And the definition of enabling still applies to the Larry Nasser story and to the church. So an enabler is a person who has a pattern of behavior that makes it easier for the abuser to continue to abuse. They ignore, they deny, they excuse, or they justify the abuse. And in your mind, you might be thinking, how on earth could anybody justify the sexual abuse of a child? But a lot of times people do this out of what they believe is some kind of twisted form of love. Even though the actions of an enabler end up making things worse in the long run, as we see in church story after church story after church story, one of which I'm going to tell you about in just a moment here, even though it makes things worse in the long run, enabling is often done out of love. People think they're doing some sort of righteous and holy and loving thing by enabling a sexual abuser of children. What they don't realize, unfortunately, is that there are way better ways to deal with a perpetrator of abuse. There are way better solutions to this problem than enabling. It's also tough, and you'll hear about this um, in recovery as well, it's kind of hard sometimes to know where that line is between, oh, I'm being a supportive person, Um, I'm caring for this person. Where is the line between supporting and caring for someone 
and enabling someone. So a lot of times enablers are in denial about this. And one of the notes that I jotted down here is that enablers cannot or will not see the danger in what they're doing. They're in denial about their behavior. I'm supporting this abuser. I'm caring for this person. He's repentant and he's so sorry for having sexually abused all these children and he wants to be different. So what I'm doing is helpful and loving and Christ-like and godly. And what they don't realize is actually, no, you are empowering this person to be able to continue abusing. You are empowering an abuser to continue to abuse children. And that example I was referring to is somebody posted in Survivor Sanctuary uh, today, actually, and was talking about how in the church where he grew up, a man who had been convicted in the past for abusing children became a volunteer with youth at the church. Now, he didn't know this person had abused in the past, but the church leadership knew that this man had been convicted in the past for abuse of children, and yet they allowed him to volunteer. And so he told us this story and I left a comment about how it's infuriating that church leaders knew about his past, but they chose to let him volunteer with youth anyway. And I said, it's completely insane how that happens in churches over and over again. And his comment back to me was really, really interesting. I'll give you his first name, Brian. Um, and I'd actually love to have Brian on the podcast to talk about his story. So hopefully we can look forward to that at some point in the future. But uh, Brian said, I think that they thought they were applying the gospel to his life. I really think they genuinely wanted to believe that he was a new creation in Christ, but they lacked the understanding of how forgiveness and repentance leads to a desire, and he's talking about a desire of an abuser, not to be in those situations again where they're tempted to reoffend. I just thought it was really interesting. They thought they were applying the gospel to his life. They genuinely wanted to believe he was a new creation in Christ. And while that might seem noble and it might seem loving and it might seem Christ-like, what it actually is, is enabling. And it's not a good thing. It's actually a really, really negative thing when it comes to sexual abuse. One of the big differences between an addiction where somebody is addicted to a substance, they're hooked on a substance and they're ruining their own lives and their own health and everything is bad. And that's not to say that family members and friends and other people, even strangers sometimes, are affected by their addiction because I know that they can be. But by and large, when somebody is destroying their own life, that's what they're doing. They're destroying their own life. But with sexual abuse... Perpetrators are actually destroying another person's life, a person who doesn't have a choice in the matter, a person who's not an adult who can't say like, all right, well, you're you're wrapped up in this addiction and I need to walk away from you and sever this relationship or we need to go to therapy. It's not like that because there is a child involved who doesn't have a choice. Things are being done and perpetrated against this child that are going to alter this child's future and the rest of this child's life is going to be changed often in a really devastating way or in many really devastating ways, and they don't have a choice in the matter. And I think that's uh, another distinction that needs to be made. If you want to destroy your own life, you know, go for it. It's, it's your life. If you really want to do it, you get to call the shots. But when it comes to sexual abuse, there is always a person in this story who didn't have a choice. And that's what makes it so freaking awful. A sweet little four-year-old minding their own business, you know, when somebody decides to sexually assault this child. And I just want to make that distinction because as I'm drawing these comparisons between enablers of like alcoholics and enablers of abusers, yes, there are similarities there, but I think that we need to keep in the forefront 
why enabling a sexual abuser is much, much, much worse than enabling a drug addict or an alcoholic. And the 500 plus victims of Dr. Larry Nasser can attest to that. The victims of every child sexual abuser that every church leader has been like, well, he seems like he's sorry. I guess it's fine if he volunteers with kids can attest to that as well. So enablers make it easier for abusers to continue abusing. And they often believe that they're doing it out of love, as I mentioned, out of a desire to be Christ-like and care for this person. They might feel like they're supporting somebody, but what they're actually doing is enabling this person to be able to continue with these bad behaviors. Another thing about enablers that I mentioned is that they're often in denial about this. They cannot or will not see the danger in what they're doing. I think sometimes it's a cannot, and I think a lot of times it's a will not. Like, I choose to spin this to say that I'm helping this man who is truly repentant for his past be able to continue to serve God. So when I let this sexual abuser who has literally done time in prison for sexually abusing children, when I let this person volunteer with youth in the church, I'm actually doing something super Christ-like and super godly. That's radical forgiveness right there. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that from the pulpit? I feel like it's super popular to say things like radical forgiveness, you know, just like put the word in front of it and it makes it amazing. I think that sometimes people actually believe whether it's innocent ignorance or willful ignorance, that they are somehow living out some radical expression of God's forgiveness by letting a sexual abuser run rampant in their church. So diving deeper into some behaviors of enablers, the the same kind of behaviors you'll read about in addiction recovery, um, enablers are often the people who are going to be very affected by the people that they're enabling. Now, with this fact, I could actually say the abused people that they're endangering are the people who are going to be most affected by the behavior of the person that this pastor, church leader, whoever is enabling. But often in the mind of an enabler, uh, such as, you know, we're talking about like church leaders who know somebody has committed sexual abuse against children. And the person says, I'm repentant. Can I volunteer with kids? And they let them. This person, maybe they're thinking, all right, you know, this might be a good option because I could harm this person's faith in Christ if I don't let him serve. You know, I might turn him away from the faith if I take this hard line and say, no, you can't, you know, come into our youth and you can't be around kids because you've already perpetrated against children. Maybe taking that hard path is going to turn this person away from the faith. I'm more cynical, um, so I tend to think that it's less about that and more about, well, you know, I really don't want anybody in my church to find out about this guy, so let's just keep it hush-hush and not make anybody in the church mad. Let's not rock the boat. We don't want any angry parents saying, why did you let this child-abusing youth worker work with my children? So the pastor or the church leader takes the easy way out and just, you know, gives in. But the bottom line is people who enable abuse are going to be affected by the abuser in some way. Their decision of whether or not to let that abuser into a position of trust in their church or to work with their user or whatever, they're going to be directly affected by the decision that they make. 
so I guess, yeah, it could be innocent. And like, you know, this pastor is frolicking in a field of wildflowers and saying, you know, I just think I might really harm this person. If I tell them they can't volunteer in my youth group, I might, you know, turn them away from the Lord. As I mentioned, something really bad could happen. I just need to be supportive of this person because that's what Jesus would do. When, when the reality is like the honest reality is you got to take a hard path with people who have abused children. You can't take the easy way out. Um, Unfortunately, when somebody has made that decision and followed through, as an adult, I'm talking, I'm not talking about children who sexually abuse other children. As an adult, when somebody has made that decision and has perpetrated against a child, there is no frolicking in a field of wildflowers and and taking an easy, loving, Christ-like, you know, Jesus makes everything sunshine and rainbows approach. You can't do that because you are endangering children. Drawing a line in the sand and taking a hard path is what is actually going to help everyone the most from children all the way up to the perpetrator that you're trying to help. Rules and regulations and the difficult work of holding somebody accountable for abusing kids, that is is what is going to have the biggest chance of stopping someone on this path of destruction that they're on. What's not going to help them at all to stop is enabling them by saying, sure, oh, you sexually abuse kids? Yeah, I did some time. I was in the penitentiary for a few years, the sexual assault of a child. Okay, well, you know, yeah, if you want to volunteer in our youth group, come on, buddy. It's going to be fine. And you might be listening to this podcast right now. My goodness. You might be thinking, um, Kelly, like, seriously, where does that happen? But actually, I guess I shouldn't say, know your audience, Kelly. Probably a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast right now know that what I'm saying is true. But there are so many people out there who would be super surprised to know that this happens in churches all the time, like literally all the time. Men who have raped young children who become pastors and all their deacons know that they've done this. And all of the church people know that they've done this, everybody in leadership, and they still choose to keep that person in a position of authority in the church, a position of authority over children. It happens all the time, and it only happens because of enablers. So I want to throw a few more enabling behaviors at you just so you can be on the lookout for them. And some of them, honestly, are pretty self-explanatory. If you repeatedly bail a person out uh, when they do something awful and you're there to pick them up and dust them off and make it all better, you could be an enabler. Lying to others about the extent of an abuser's history or past is also a hallmark of an enabler. How often do we see that in churches where people maybe not outright lie, sometimes outright lie, but definitely withhold the truth from others. We don't want to let them we don't want to ruin this guy's reputation. So we're not going to tell this church that he's a sexual assaulter of children. You know, we're just going to well, we'll get him out the back door. He's not a danger to our church anymore. And yeah, he'll go there and we're sure he's changed and that he feels really sorry. Lying to others about the extent of somebody's past as an abuser is also a hallmark of an enabler. Um, people who enable make excuses for the person's abuse or the person's past. You know, excuses, oh, well... You know, they're very repentant. They didn't mean to do this. You don't understand. They had a really hard life, blah, 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 the excuses. Um, They also assure other people often that the abuse isn't really a problem. Listen, he did this years ago. 
I mean, are you going to punish somebody for what they did in, in 1986? Are you going to punish him now in 2016 and 2020? Like back in the 80s, this happened. And 30 years later, you're going to, they frequently assure people that the abuse is not a big problem. At least it's not a problem anymore. Here's one that gets me. And I'm telling you, it's right from the addiction recovery playbook. Enablers frequently pay for damages or legal fees caused by, they say, being under the influence, but we would say for our purposes, damages or legal fees caused by an abuser abusing. How often do we see that? A predator assaults somebody in a church and the church, they've got to pay a lot of legal fees. I'm not saying they're going to go and and pay for the perpetrator's legal fees, although in some cases that absolutely has happened, but they end up paying for a lot of the damages that are done when the abuser ultimately ends up doing what abusers do because that's what abusers do. One last hallmark of an enabler is that they deny the impact of a person's abusive behavior. We see that so much and sometimes people do it in just a completely ignorant way where bless their hearts they don't know any better like oh okay so they had this bad experience when they were a small child and you know but it's over now and that's the good news they lived through it and bless god everything's fine you know they deny the impact that abuse has on people and one of the reasons that they do it is because it makes it a whole lot easier to justify enabling an abuser if you minimize the impact of what that abusive person's behavior is going to do to their victims I want to add something to the list that's not usually in many addiction recovery manuals. Enablers of abusers are secondary abusers. They really take part and take some of the blame in in the abuse. When you talk to survivors of sexual abuse, so many of them will say, the abuse was awful, but do you know what really sucked? Do you know what I still struggle to get over? The response and the actions of the people who should have known better the people who should have protected me, the people who enabled my abuser, the apologists for the abusers. We saw this um, in the Larry Nasser story as well in Athlete A. There is so much pain related to sexual abuse, and there's so much to get over when you're just unfolding and unpacking everything that's happened with just an abusive person and his victim or her victim. When you add enablers into the mix, people who should know better, people who don't sexually abuse children, but for some freaking unknown reason have decided it's okay to help abusers abuse children, whether it is innocently or totally on purpose, I guess it makes a difference, but not a big one. When it comes to a victim of sexual abuse and their enabler, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference if the enabler did it on purpose or not. Enablers are secondary abusers. There is an extra layer of trauma when it comes to the people who should know better, who allowed the abuse to happen, and who continue to make excuses for the abusers. Rather than just taking the side of the victim and saying, you know what, what happened to you was horrible, there's no excuse on earth for it. So we've kind of defined what an enabler is, a secondary abuser, somebody who basically makes an abuser's job easier for them. 
you have active enablers, and I, I don't really have a lot of time in this podcast to get into the difference between active enablers and passive enablers. It's kind of self-explanatory in a sense. An active enabler knows what they're doing. Uh, they're actively trying to cover up abuse. They're actively trying to keep you from finding out that this youth pastor they just hired has sexually assaulted a minor in his past or in her past. An active enabler is actually working for the perpetrator to keep them out of trouble, to keep people from finding out about their past, to keep suspicion low so nobody's gonna be watching these people, nobody's gonna be on the lookout or protecting their kids because they don't know to do it. That's an active enabler. There are passive enablers as well, and they annoy the crap out of me, but they're not quite as bad, I don't think, as active enablers. A passive enabler is a little bit more unaware of what they're doing. They're not actively saying, oh, I want to help this person get away with a crime. I want to keep people from finding out. They're typically unaware of what's really going on, and they mean well. Often, they think that they're doing the right thing. Like I mentioned, we're being Christ-like. We're being loving by you know, helping this person who may have this shady past. But whether a person is a passive enabler or an active enabler, the bottom line is they're an enabler. And I happen to think that enablers can be more dangerous than abusers themselves. Again, the caveat that I am not excusing abusers. I am just saying abusers are abusive. Sexual predators prey on people. Child sexual predators prey on children. It's, it's what they do. There's not an excuse for it, but it is what it is. And at least you know what to expect when it comes to somebody who's a predator. Like you don't look at a, a coyote like, all right, I have these little sheep and I keep them in my pen at night. And there's this coyote that likes to hang around. Well, I know that coyotes are predators. And actually one of my sheep was killed by this coyote a couple of weeks ago. So am I going to leave the pen unlocked? Like, am I going to do that? No, because I know that this coyote is a predator. His mission is going to be to get in and kill one of these sheep so he can have a delicious midnight snack. Like, you know what to expect from a wolf, from a coyote, from a perpetrator of sexual abuse. You know what to expect. This is an abuser. You can expect that they will abuse. Have you ever noticed in like really scary movies, I'll use this as an example, like I hate scary movies. They give me the worst anxiety. Like I know some people just love horror movies and oh, getting scared is so fun. And I feel like I'm being tortured when I have to watch a horror movie. It's like, why, I already struggle with anxiety. Why would I want to make it worse by sitting here and watching this horror movie? It makes absolutely no sense. But I know some people love them. But for me, I've noticed something that I'm always more terrified of the unknown. Like when I don't know what's lurking out in the forest and I don't know what is about to attack and murder these innocent people that are in a cabin all alone in the woods for God only knows what reason, it's actually scarier than when the bad guy shows up. So I found that in horror movies, a lot of my anxiety subsides once I see the monster, once I see the perpetrator, because then I know what I'm looking for. You get to understand that that monster's patterns, to know what to expect from it, what it's going to do next. Like once you can see it and it's in your eyesight, for me anyway, this is how it works. Once it's identified, it's less scary to me. So I kind of feel that way about abusers. Once I know, I know, like I don't need to fear you because I know what you are now. And so I know how to deal with you. 
we don't have that with enablers. They're behind the scenes empowering abusers to be able to keep abusing, making excuses for them, trying to support them and be loving and Christ-like and kind to them. All the while, we're out here like unaware that this stuff is happening. So you don't have that same way to identify, boom, this person is a perpetrator. I'll use the coyote example. I see a coyote. I know what it wants. I know why it's there. Even if it's a little scary to look at it and I don't want to be out alone in the dark with it, I know what it is. I know what to expect. When it comes to enablers, on the other hand, though, they're constantly trying to convince everybody that the abuser is anything but an abuser. That's like the mission of an enabler. Like, I want to help this person. I want to change this person. I want to believe that, yes, you may have sexually assaulted a six-year-old or three six-year-olds, but gosh darn it, you say you're sorry and we believe in God and that he is capable of radical forgiveness and we're going to let you in our church because we know that you've been forgiven. If God forgives you, who are we to not forgive you? Like enablers are doing everything they can to keep us from identifying that an abuser is in fact an abuser. The enabler in the coyote scenario is like the shepherd who's like, yeah, you know, I've got a bunch of sheep. And uh, sure, this coyote last month slaughtered a couple of them, enjoyed his midnight snack. But tonight, you know what? Who am I to judge? I I can forgive this coyote. He's probably just wants to hang out because he's a nice guy. He probably just wants to hang out because it's warmer by the sheep pen. Maybe he just likes to look at the sheep. So when I leave tonight to go sleep, I'm just going to leave the door unlatched. It sounds really dumb. Like it sounds childlike. And I feel sorry. Sorry, kids. Like, I feel like I'm insulting children right now. It sounds dumb. But honestly, at the core, that's what enablers are doing. And that's why I think that they are so much more dangerous in so many cases than abusers themselves. If you look at Larry Nasser, yes, a dangerous, horrible person. But do you know why he was able to be as dangerous as he was? Because of all the people around him enabling him. If he hadn't had people enabling him for years and years and years, he would not have been able to perpetrate anywhere near as much as he did. That's the scary thing, is that there were people who knew because they were told hey, this doctor touched me inappropriately. Hey, this doctor is digitally penetrating me. Trigger warning, digitally penetrating anally and vaginally. People complained as as far back as I think it was 1996 or 1997. It took enablers to keep Larry Nasser in the position where he was able to sexually assault hundreds of girls. He was going to abuse because he was an abuser. Like, I'm not excusing him. I'm not saying that he doesn't, you know, take the blame for what he did. Every person that he abused, he made the choice to abuse them. But the people who gave him the power to do it, they literally empowered this man to continue abusing dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds even. If the first person who reported that he sexually abused them had been listened to, if the law had been, had been followed... If these people had taken a hard line when it came to Larry Nassar and sexual abuse, hey, buddy, sorry, somebody has accused you of sexual abuse and we can't have you here. Like, we're going to report you. We're going to report you to the police. We're going to report you to the university. We're going to report you to the medical board. Like, we're going to do everything that we need to do because these allegations of abuse have been made. But they didn't. Instead, they basically helped him 
to be able to keep abusing people. And we do this in churches over and over and over again. And we do it in the name of love. And we do it in the name of being Christ-like and godly. And we do it in the name of radical grace and radical forgiveness. And it, it makes me want to vomit on my shoes. Another conversation that I had on uh, Facebook was somebody who posted about a pastor who, again, had covered up abuse and didn't want to turn in a guy who had sexually abused women. And he was questioned, like, why didn't you turn this person in? Why didn't you say that he was a sexual abuser? Why didn't you? And he said, I erred on the side of mercy. And my question when it comes to enablers is mercy for who? It's always mercy for the perpetrator. It's never mercy for the kids who are going to suffer when you let this guy keep doing what he's doing. It is never mercy for the victim. It is always mercy for the perpetrator. And that is what makes enablers more dangerous than abusers. That you could look at a situation where a small child, a medium child, a large child has been sexually assaulted by an adult. Or you can look at this situation and say, what I really need to be concerned with now is mercy for this perpetrator. Mercy to a perpetrator is stopping them. And I think that that's something that enablers miss over and over again. Mercy to an abuser is stopping them. Because what's waiting for them on the other side of eternity When they stand before God, and they will someday, it is not going to be pretty. Jesus spoke about it. It would be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were tossed into the depths of the sea. That is better. The horror of that is better than what they're going to face when they stand before God. Our mercy is stopping them. It's stopping them at all costs. It's drawing a hard line in the sand. It's using tough love. You don't have to be hateful, but you have to be firm. Oh, you've been in trouble for sexually abusing children. Well, here's the deal. You're not allowed to be around children in our church. You can't volunteer in our youth ministry. Some churches might say you can't come to our services at all if children are going to be present. This is to protect the kids in our church because they matter. And its secondary purpose is to protect you from yourself. And a truly repentant person is going to accept that. I think this is the test. Oh, we have to show love and grace and mercy. We have to show them this forgiveness that God's showered on us and this grace. We don't want them to lose heart. But the reality is, the truth, is that someone who is truly repentant for sexually abusing children is going to welcome restrictions when it comes to those children. You want to know if an abuser is repentant? Slap some rules on them. Slap some rules on her. See what the reaction is. If it's anger, if it's indignance, like, how dare you? Like, I've said I was sorry. Are you going to hold this against me for the rest of my life? That's not a sign of a repentant person. I think that one of the main reasons enablers are more dangerous than abusers themselves is that enablers always focus on the needs of the abuser rather than the needs of the abused. They're so concerned with not hurting the feelings of abusers not tarnishing their reputations, not making them feel bad by not allowing them into services where children are going to be, not imposing rules and regulations because, oh gosh, then it looks like we don't trust you. They look at abusers and think that all of those things are going to harm the abuser. They don't look at victims 
or children who haven't been victimized yet, but as in Larry Nasser's case, very well could be if the right things aren't done. They don't look at them with the same care and concern that for whatever reason they've reserved for abusers. It's a dangerous mentality, and we're seeing it in our churches over and over and over again. We just are. I mean, you cannot open Facebook. I follow a lot of pages about sexual abuse and sexual abuse in the church. So yeah, it's a given I'm going to see these stories, but it's every single day. Abusers never surprise me. I still get shocked by their enablers. What are people thinking? Like, What is possessing people to put someone in a pastoral position or in a church leadership position, even in a church volunteer position, when you know what they're capable of doing to innocent children. There's not an excuse for it. I could go on because it's what I do, but uh, we're out of time for this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I would love to continue the conversation, and we can do that on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group page. You can visit Facebook, search Survivor Sanctuary, and request to join. And I will add you to the group, and you can talk there like uh, Brian did today, uh, sharing part of his story. You can share part of your story if you're comfortable. You can add any questions or comments that you have about today's episode and hang out with a great group of survivors of sexual abuse and advocates who you'll feel safe talking to. Well, thank you so much for letting me be a part of your day today. I'm always honored And I will catch you back here on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.